So we're going to continue on in Mark this morning by reading from John. Okay. It'll get clearer in a second. So from, for those of you that, uh, that I haven't met, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. Really uh, good to be with you again this morning. Um, for almost a year now, we've been in the book of Mark, and uh, we've been working our way through it. We're, we're coming to the conclusion of Mark. Um, we've come to really to the last two days before the crucifixion in our study uh, in Mark. But today I want to make a little bit of a detour, and what I want to look at is this same story that we've been reading in Mark, only from a couple of different Gospels, okay? Um, all four of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell this same story, but they tell it from the vantage point of that particular writer. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to round out the story that we've been reading in Mark from a couple of the other Gospels. So, so let's go before the Lord, pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, we're, we're grateful this morning uh, for your word. Lord, your, your word constantly uh, is speaking to us. You're constantly speaking to us through your word. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would give us um, ears to hear and open hearts, Lord, that, uh, that we can receive from you what you have for us today. Lord, we, we present ourselves to you and say, change us, Lord. Change us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray it for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that all of us would agree that the last couple of years, um, we didn't see it coming. Okay, uh, we didn't, we've never experienced anything quite like what we experienced beginning in, um, in early 2020. There's an old saying that's been attributed to an ancient Chinese writer that says this, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> now, you know, at first hearing, uh, that, that sounds not too bad. I want my life to be interesting. But then, you know, you, you listen to it a little more carefully and, um, you know, you, you realize that uninteresting times are times of peace and tranquility and nothing's really rocking the boat. And um, you realize that may you live in interesting times is actually a curse uh, that says it'll be times of trouble, it'll be times of trials and a storm that's really threatening to sink the boat. Well, I turned 70 last year, and that's given me a little different perspective um, as I look around our world. The political divisions, the racial unrest, the uncertainty and the fear that I hear in people as I talk to them are really greater than anything that I have seen since the 1960s. Now, for all the great music that came out of the 1960s, and it was the best music in like two centuries, um, there was also a lot of difficulty, and, um, and there, there was really um, a, a lot of heartbreak, and, and it was a horrific time for some of us who lived through that. 58,000 young men of my generation died in the rice paddies and the jungles of Vietnam. Five times that many civilians died there. Uh, during that decade, America experienced the assassinations of three major political and cultural uh, figures. So how many of you 
are old enough to remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard about President Kennedy's assassination. Yeah, me too. Well, as the 60s came to a close, rioters were burning our cities, uh, the college campuses were on fire, drugs were everywhere. Heck, uh, LSD was legal to buy and sell until late 1968, see? Um, there was a feeling that our nation and even the world was just going to hell in a handbasket. Um, into that chaos and into that hopelessness, God poured out his spirit became known as the Jesus Movement. I was one of, of thousands of young men and women who were caught up into that. I watched the topic of conversation among us change from drugs, from politics and rock and roll, to Jesus and his power. We baptized thousands of new believers in streams, in lakes, in oceans, uh, any place that we could find water. We told anybody who would listen about the power of Jesus and what he had done in our lives. Well, one of those young men, now turned old uh, from the Jesus movement, wrote this a few years ago. The Jesus movement permanently defined my own expectations of gospel ministry. I was there. It ruined me for life. I cannot settle for routinized ministry. I saw what only God can do, as did many of my contemporaries. Our restless hearts will never stop aching for a new visitation of the Lord upon our land. Maybe we're at the front end of a new awakening. The Jesus movement was like a power surge. It came and it went. But this time, more slowly, we're planting churches, building websites, writing books, forming networks, and so forth. This time, it's not going away, but only keeps coming. This time, the spiritual momentum could become greater, maybe far greater, to reshape the rest of this century for the greater glory of Christ. This 64-year-old ex-hippie street preacher prays it will be so. Amen. That was Pastor Ray Ortland. So some of you know Ray Ortland. Well, society looked out of control, and everything looked pretty hopeless in the late 60s when God poured out his spirit and intervened. It actually looked a lot like it does today. So I'm with Ray Ortland on this one. Father, do it again. Do it again, Father. Bring us back from the edge. So we find ourselves also today living in interesting times. But the things that are happening and the things that have happened in our lifetimes, are we're not the first people to have lived during interesting times. Around the, the time of Jesus' birth, the people of Israel had also been living in interesting times. They had repeatedly been conquered by the nations surrounding them. Um, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now the Romans had, um, had occupied their country. They had experienced a civil war, and now the leaders of their society were fractured into several groups that all detested each other and who were competing for the hearts of the people. All that makes our own interesting times seem a little less unique, doesn't it? Well, that first century was the time that God chose to send his son Jesus into the world. 
So, and I appreciate the fact that God gave us four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Each was written to a specific first century people group, and each gives us the view of Jesus' life from that writer's perspective. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy, and then he takes 28 chapters to build to the conclusion that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Luke spends 24 chapters proving that Jesus is not only a man, but he's also God. So Mark skipped the genealogies, and he went straight to telling the story of Jesus' ministry, especially the miracles, uh, the signs, and the wonders. Then there's the book of John. I love the book of John. Um, unlike the other Gospels that build to a conclusion about who Jesus is, uh, John just cuts to the chase, and he tells us in the first verse of the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, so John says, let's just start with the punchline. Jesus is God. Now, look around you. Everything that you see was made by him. There's not a single thing that you can find that, uh, that Jesus didn't make. And then John goes on to fill his book, not only with stories of Jesus' life here on the earth, but also really big ideas like this one. God loves the world in this way, that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See? John writes, whoever believes in him. Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it's something that is worth coming back and, uh, and underscoring. Belief is much, much more than just giving a mental nod to Jesus' existence, okay? Um, the belief that John is talking about here it implies that we're trusting in him and we're relying on him for all of life. Belief that actually makes a difference in the six days between Sundays, okay? Uh, it's a belief that leads to radical action. So Jesus calls us to climb in the boat with him. And sometimes that boat looks like an amphibious landing craft like they used uh, during the D-Day invasion. So Jesus, where are we going? Well, you see that country up ahead? Um, you're getting ready to invade that. You're going to go behind enemy lines, and you're going to rescue people that, that are in bondage there. See those, those cliffs up ahead that are bristling with cannons and machine gun nests? You're going to scale those things, and then you're going to fight your way inland to rescue those who are in the, in the shadow of death. But don't worry, I'm going to be with you the whole way. And even if you get killed, you win. The only way that you can lose in this is to turn back. Okay. Um, in reality, the fight that we're in is much more global, and the stakes are even higher than they were um, at D-Day. The battle has been raging for more than 2,000 years and will continue 
until the day that Jesus returns. But this time, it won't be eight-pound, two-ounce baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It'll be King Jesus. It'll be King Jesus in white robes, dipped in blood. He'll have a sword. He'll have a new name tattooed on his thigh. He'll be on a horse and he'll be leading the army of God against all of his enemies. And that battle, it'll be no contest. There's not the slightest question of the outcome of that battle. Jesus wins that one. Even Satan knows that. John tells us that Satan knows that his time is short, and so he's taking out everything he can on us. You know why Satan hates us so much? It's because the first man and the first woman were made in the image of God. And even though that image in us has been marred by sin, every time Satan looks at us, he sees the image of God. And it reminds him of the God he rebelled against and the God who flatly defeated him on the cross. So he does everything in his power to disfigure that image of God in us. A wimpy mental nod to Jesus' existence is not going to cut it in the battle that we've been called to. Now the church has, has sometimes used the phrase accepting Jesus to describe our commitment to him. That's just bad theology. Uh, we don't need to passively accept Jesus. We need to be on our faces, humbly surrendering all to King Jesus, get equipped for the battle, and get involved in all that he's called us to. Anything less than that is going to have a hard time standing uh, in, when the circumstances of life start not going our way. Well, I heard somebody say recently that we were made for this day, and the day was made for us. See, you and I weren't called to engage the purposes of God in the first century, or in 16th century England, or even in the United States during the 1940s. We are called and we're uniquely equipped to be his people and to push back darkness in this place and this time. The Apostle Paul and King David, they weren't called to our time. They were equipped and called to their own time and their own place, and they would be woefully out of place here. This is our time and our place. We were made for this day, and the day was made for us. Acts 13.36 tells us this. David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. See, that needs to be our goal too, to serve the purposes of God in our generation and then to pass the baton to the next generation so that they can do exactly the same thing. That's my introduction. We're going to have to move and get into John if we're going to get finished today. <laughs> um, so Jesus starts our passage today by saying, a little while and you will see me no longer, and a little while and you will see me again. I just see the disciples rolling their eyes and going, here we go again with another one of Jesus' riddles. Um, you know, what on earth is he talking about a little while? And um, 
So Jesus understands that they're not getting it. So he gives them another illustration, this time about a woman who is in labor. He uses several words to describe what that lady is experiencing. Weeping, lamenting, anguish, and then three times he mentions sorrow. But then he says that her anguish and her sorrow are going to turn into joy because the baby is born and all of her focus is now on her baby. And then Jesus tells them that it will be the same way with them. They will also have sorrow, but then their sorrow will be turned into joy when they see him again. So they respond by saying, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. But you get the idea that they're really talking above what they actually understood because Jesus' response to them was, do you really believe? And then he proceeds to tell them that they're, going, they're getting ready, all of them getting ready to abandon him and leave him alone. Then in verse uh, 23, Jesus begins talking about asking things from the Father in Jesus' name. Let's read that again. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So this idea of asking things in Jesus' name has been a real puzzle and even a stumbling block to some of us who are trying to follow Jesus. So I want to say a couple of things about this. The verse just told us, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So whatever you ask, he will give it. Sounds a lot like a blank check. We ask, he does it. So if that's all that it is, then the phrase in Jesus' name becomes like a magic wand or an incantation, like abracadabra. See, we we rub the lamp, the genie pops out and gives us three wishes except it doesn't work like that. And when it doesn't, then it's easy for us to get offended and and we can stumble over that. Why did I ask and God didn't do what he said he was going to do? Well, part of the answer to that can be found in uh, John chapter 15. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. So can you see the difference between um, just asking and receiving and abiding in him and asking and receiving? See, these verses don't contradict each other. They actually complement one another. It's a little bit like this picture. We got a slide there? Yeah, this thing. So what you're looking at is an Egyptian signet ring that was worn by a pharaoh around the time of King David. If the Pharaoh made a decree or he granted a request, he would use the signet ring to show his approval by pressing it into the wax or the clay seal that was sealing the document. It was like his signature, only it was better. The only other person who ever got to touch that ring was the king's most trusted advisor and confidant. He got to use the the ring because the king trusted him. He knew the man to his core, 
and he knew that the ring was safe in his hands. That man could represent the king because the king trusted him. That's what in Jesus' name means. We don't even need to say the words for us to be functioning in Jesus' name. If we abide in him and his words abide in us, he trusts us to ask and he will do it. Why? Because he knows, uh, like that king's confidant and advisor, that we're not trying to build our own kingdom, but his. And so if we're trying to build his kingdom and not our own, he trusts us with the signet ring. See, And that's a world away from rubbing the lamp and getting your wishes. Um, the last of our verses today is verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, um, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Um, those were, that's a little bit archaic, that language is. Um, can you imagine being around the water cooler at work and, um, and saying, so how are things going? Well, I'm experiencing great tribulation. Oh, well, be of good courage. Now, we don't talk like that. <laughs> we just don't. So here's an alternate reading of that. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have great trouble and suffering. But cheer up. Be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Now, there's a kind of trouble and suffering that can come to us um, in, in the form of persecution for Jesus' sake. That kind of suffering is something that we could call external suffering. It's suffering that comes to us because of the stand that we take for Jesus. But there's also another kind of suffering, a kind that comes as a result of our own brokenness or the brokenness of those around us. Our bad choices and the bad choices of our parents, our acquaintances, and even our closest friends can cause us suffering. Choices that we and they have made in the past and that sometimes we still make today. The Pharisees going after Jesus because he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath was external suffering. See, um, it came from the outside. Peter denying that he knew Jesus was a kind of internal suffering for Peter. It's one that came from Peter's own uh, fear of man and his self-protection. It caused in Peter shame and remorse. Well, the disciples had spent three years listening to Jesus teach them and watching him express the Father's love to the world. That's over a thousand campfires together. I mean, that puts it in, in perspective for me. A thousand campfires of listening to Jesus and watching him as he worked in people's lives. The disciples had even been sent to minister without Jesus' presence uh, for a few days, casting out demons and healing people. But those three years had largely been a training exercise for them. Now, on this night, it was test time, and the next 24 hours were going to lead them to a really dark place and show them their own brokenness. Well, if we back up and we take like a 30,000-foot look 
at the book of John, you'll see that the first 12 chapters of the book of John cover three years, really from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry up until about a week before his crucifixion. Then beginning in chapter 13, the book slows way, way down. And most of the next nine chapters uh, happen during Jesus' last night on earth. Okay? Um, we're in chapter 16 now. Jesus had already washed the disciples' feet. Uh, they had eaten the Passover meal together. And Judas had already left and was at this, this moment betraying him to the religious leaders. Why does John slow things down so much? Well, I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jesus that night, knowing what he knew about what was getting ready to happen. He was only hours away from taking on himself all the sins of the world. He knew that when that happened, for the first and only time in creation, the Father was getting ready to turn his face away from him, and he would be left totally alone. He was going to be left utterly alone, bearing all our sin, all our brokenness, the nailed naked to a Roman cross hanging there between two criminals. So how does Jesus spend that last night in all those chapters? How does he spend that last night with his disciples? See, if I was the one facing death, <clears throat> it would be all about me. I would, be, I would be, you know, so focused on my own sorrow and my own sadness that it would be all about me. Jesus spent that night encouraging his guys, even though they didn't really understand much of it. In every way he could, as a good shepherd, he was getting between them and the danger. But when it all started coming down, and Peter denied even knowing him. And all the disciples ran away. And Jesus was taken. And he was beaten and mocked and spit on. And finally crucified. Do you think it helped the disciples? That Jesus had already told them that all this was going to happen. You better believe it did. See, they were in deep pain. They were in, in deep shame and remorse. And yet knowing that Jesus had told them that all this was going to happen, helped them through that really dark night and the next three dark days. Judas didn't have that comfort, so he killed himself. Luke records something that happened that last night that Jesus spent with his disciples. They'd gotten into yet another argument about who was the greatest, and Jesus changed the subject on them. In um, Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's so much in those two verses. There's the interaction between Jesus, the Father, Satan, and the disciples. Satan was demanding to have them. That first you there, when he says Satan has demanded to have you, that's plural. He was demanding not just Peter, but all of the disciples. And what was it that he was going to do with them? 
He wanted to sift them like wheat. See, he wanted to winnow them. Well, in the first century, wheat was winnowed by taking a winnowing fork or a winnowing fan and throwing it up in the air. See, that um, as a pretty traumatic experience if the disciples happen to be the wheat that's getting winnowed. And guess what? God granted Satan's demand. See, what was that about? Did, did Satan just win here? Is that what happened? Does he really have that much power? You know what happens when you win a wheat? The wheat goes up in the air and the chaff gets carried away. The impurities that need to go get blown away on the wind. So yes, Satan was allowed to toss them around. But he was on a really short leash here. He couldn't kill the disciples. He couldn't even physically harm them at this point. All he could do was throw them around. And the result of that tossing was that they got purified. They literally got the trash beat out of them. I mean, literally. If Satan had known that what he was doing to the disciples was helping to purify them and accomplish God's purposes, he would have left them alone. He wouldn't have even done that. Verse 32, uh, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus was praying for them as they were getting winnowed. How well do you think Jesus' prayers get answered? Pretty well, I think. So Jesus could confidently tell Peter, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. He knew that Peter's faith was going to falter, but it wasn't going to fail. And so, so even before the cross, he gives Peter an assignment. After all this is over, I want you to strengthen your brothers. So before they stepped into that tornado that was coming for them just really a, a few minutes away, Peter got an assignment. Those guys were going to need encouraging. And so he, he assigned Peter to encourage them. So let's make this personal. Is it helpful for us to see the disciples getting tossed around 2,000 years ago and then their, their faith not failing? Um, see, it, yes, it is. It encourages us to know that after this, they went on to preach the gospel in all of the then known world. But the big question for us here this morning is, will Jesus allow us to get winnowed? See? In his love for us, will he permit the enemy of our souls to beat the trash out of us to make us more like Jesus? Well, the message of Scripture and my experience has been the answer is yes, he will. Um, <clears throat> our God is a faithful Father who will allow us to be miserable if the result of that pain is our eternal good. So just so you can see that I'm not making this stuff up, um, look at what Peter has to say. Peter, this is the guy who knew something about getting hurt by God for his eternal good. 1 Peter 1.6, In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
1 Peter 4.1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I could go on and on just in Peter's letters. He had a lot to say about suffering. But hear me when I say this. When we suffer, God is not punishing us. See, if you've surrendered to Jesus, there is no longer any punishment for your sins. Jesus took all the punishment for our sins, past, present, and future, when he went to the cross. See? Um, for us to see our suffering as payment for sins is as much as to say that Jesus' death was not enough to cover all of our sins. And that's just flat wrong. Our, all of our sins were paid for on the cross by our elder brother, Jesus. So if we're not being punished when we suffer, what is suffering about? It's about having the character of Christ formed in us. I have a, a pastor friend who was, uh, was in a really dark place. He was seeing his own brokenness, his own selfishness, and his desire to build his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And this was years um, of after he uh, first entered the pulpit. So he talked to this older guy and he said, when man fell, how far did he fall? I mean, how far did I fall? And the older guy looked thoughtful for a minute and then he said, we'll never really know how far we fell until we begin the long climb back up. See? God's work of restoring the image of God of God in each of us is a lifelong, lengthy process of climbing back up. And we need to be in it for the long haul because it's going to go on until we stop breathing. This is not earning your salvation. It's not being punished for your sins. It's about forsaking our old patterns of sin and being made new in His image so that we actually walk in the newness of life. We don't just talk about the newness of life. We actually walk in the newness of life. Back in John 13, um, John had begun his description of that last night they were spending together this way. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. One translation says, he loved them to the uttermost. That same Jesus is loving us this morning in the same way. It wasn't just the disciples who get winnowed. We get winnowed too. Life throws us around. We have an enemy who would like to see us dead, but Jesus is praying for us. Do you know that the Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us? See? Um, when John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. That includes us too, us who are in the world. So some of us here today have believed wrong things 
about asking and receiving from God. We got offended with him when we asked and then we didn't receive um, something. We didn't receive in the way that we expected to. Others have seen our suffering as God punishing us for our sins. If you're trapped in either of those boxes today, and only you know if you are, um, there, there is help. You don't have to walk out of here trapped in those things. Uh, Father's love for you is boundless, and there are people here who would love to listen to your story today and pray for you. If you've never surrendered to Jesus today, you, you may be thinking, yeah, this is okay for you, um, but I've really gone too far. Uh, I don't think God is interested in me. Well, let me assure you, you have not outsinned the grace of God. Saul of Tarsus, he was a first century religious terrorist who dragged men, women, and children out of their homes simply because they believed in Jesus. And then he would gather a crowd and he would throw rocks at them until they stopped moving. And God looked down at Saul and said, him, I want him. I'm going to get a hold of him. I'm going to turn him around and he is going to be a trophy of my mercy and my grace. Okay? I'm, I'm going to have him write half the New Testament and, I, and we're going to call him the Apostle Paul. See, let me assure you, whatever you've done, you have not outsinned the Apostle Paul and you have not outsinned God's grace. Okay, so come up after the service and, um, and let us hear your story. Well, stand with me and, and let me pray for us now. Father, I, I pray for all of us who are gathered here this morning. Lord, you, you know where we are. You know where each of us is. Lord, you know where each of us is even better than, than we know our own hearts. So, Father, I pray that for those who, who have um, become offended somehow with you because of something they perceived you should have done but didn't, or those who, who have felt like that you're angry with them and you're uh, beating them up for their own sin, Lord, I pray that, that they would be able to walk free from that today. And Father, I pray for my friends here who don't know you yet, Lord. I pray that you would, um, would comfort them and draw them by your spirit, Lord. That, that they would see that, that they have not outsend your love and your grace, Lord. Father, I, I just ask, Lord, that, uh, that you would change your hearts today. Lord, that, that we would be able to lay the burdens down that we came in with and that we would truly be able to walk in the newness of life. So, Father, we, we offer ourselves to you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.